0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Our Father and our God, as we continue our worship, we pray that you will give life to your words, that you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, enable us to be Profited to be encouraged, to be exhorted, to be strengthened in faith and in joy and in hope and in all peace as sharers in your triumph in Jesus our Lord. Father, meet us in our need. Free us from whatever would distract, carry our minds away. We give you this time, we consecrate it to you, we pray that you will cause it to be fruitful. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Last time as we considered this topic of lament, we looked at Psalm 13 as uh, one of David's Psalms of lament, and we've continued to look at Passages that treat this subject of lament, even in our readings this morning. And I told you last time, and I I hope that you've seen it to be true, that lament is a predominant theme in the Psalms. It may seem kind of strange that that would be the case, uh, often because of the way we understand the concept of lament, but it is a predominant theme throughout the Psalms. It's probably Uh, I would say, as I mentioned before, present in virtually every psalm in some sense, even if that's not the particular focus of the psalm. Because lament gives voice to the struggles and the challenges that we face as the children of God. And we all face struggles and challenges in living into this reality of being the children of God. And lament gives voice to that. And that helps to underscore the sense in which, as I said also two weeks ago, lament is a primary, a core aspect of worship. God is not displeased with our lament. It is a key aspect of our worship, but when it is rightly understood and rightly employed. Simply grumbling and complaining to God is not lament. But as it is scripturally, lament is is absolutely at the center of our worship. Because it, it, it finds us in a right relation to God of humility, of dependence, of gratitude, of faith, of hope, of patience, confidence in our God. And I mentioned also last time that that among the psalms of lament, they are both personal. There are ones psalms that are more personal in their lament. There are others that are more communal, that more speak to Israel's corporate lament as a nation, as a people. The people of Israel were individually the children of God, but together they were the son of God by virtue of their Abrahamic relationship And so you find in the Psalms the reflection of those challenges of sonship coming both personally in the case of Psalm 13, as we looked last time. And then also uh, what I want to consider today, Psalm 74. There are many, many, many Psalms that that, uh, are corporate lament or communal lament that express the lament of the nation, even if that lament is taken into the mouth of one person, it, it expresses the lament of the whole nation. And then finally, we considered last time how at the heart of this idea of lament, as it speaks to this concept of sonship, at the heart of that is the covenant relationship between God and his people. Both the premise and the basic concern in lament is this covenant relationship with God. And so it's not abstract, it's not generic, it's not grumbling and whining and complaining. It's, it's working out in a striving, grappling sort of way, this, this reality of sonship. Grounded in the covenant relationship, and in the case of Israel's scriptures, the covenant relationship between God and Israel. So, even when lament is deeply personal, as we saw with Daniel in a sense, it's also covenantal. Because the psalmist or whoever the lamenter is in the scripture is operating from within that context of the covenant relationship. Whether on his own behalf or ultimately in some sense at least on behalf of the whole nation. The psalms of lament like all of the scriptures, all of Israel's scriptures have sonship at their heart. The psalms including the lament psalms are the songs of sonship. So as I said, I want to consider today in Psalm 74, if you want to turn to that, we'll read that together. Psalm 74, a Maskil, a poem of Asaph. Oh God, why have you rejected us perpetually is the idea, in perpetuity, unceasingly? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They've set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees, and now all its carved work they smash with hatchet and hammers. Talking about the sanctuary. They've burned the sanctuary to the ground. They've defiled the dwelling place of your name. They have said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. The people of the living God. They have burned all of the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who can answer who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name? Will it be forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? No, from within your bosom, destroy them. And yet God is my king, my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You give him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You've established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And so remember this, O Lord, that the enemy is reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Do arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually." This is God's word. Well, as I said, this is a psalm uh, attributed to Asaph, one of the 12. uh, Psalm 50 and then 73 through 84 are ascribed to Asaph. We saw, I think before, that Asaph was a Levite. He was one of the men that David appointed. David appointed a man from each of Levi's three sons, Gershom, Merari, and Coath, to lead Music to be leaders of the three choirs that David appointed to lead the worship in Israel. And Asaph was one of those men. So he was a contemporary of David, a worship leader in Israel, a composer, a singer, a leader of the worship. And that ascribing of the psalm to uh, Asaph is kind of on the face of it problematic because it makes us ask the question, what happened during the time of Asaph that resembles what's described in this psalm? There really was nothing during that time that fit this description, the destruction of the sanctuary, desolation throughout the land. And so there are generally four ways that this this is interpreted in terms of what is Asaph or what is the psalmist getting at. The first view is that this concerns the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian destruction that came in 586. A second view puts it even later, which is that the, the psalmist is writing concerning The uh, desecration, desolation of the sanctuary that happened under the uh, Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes, around 168 BC. Hanukkah commemorates the cleansing of the temple. But there was a defiling, a desecrating of the temple, setting up of a statue of Zeus and sacrificing a pig on the altar. It was Antiochus Epiphanes' way of breaking the back of the Israelites when he took control of Jerusalem. That's a second view. Another view is that this is actually describing circumstances in Asaph's day, but using in poetic language hyperbole to express it in kind of an intensive sort of way. In other words, Asaph isn't speaking literally, but he's using hyperbole to speak of the significance Of this circumstance that had come against God's people and God's city of Jerusalem in his temple. Some attach this to the uh, insurrection by Absalom. Which doesn't fit this in a literal sense, but the significance of it was an assault on God and his kingdom and his city. That's another view. Another view is that Asaph is actually writing of what would come in the future uh, with, in other words, he's writing as a prophet. And in First Chronicles, it is said that Asaph and these other men uh, prophesied to Israel. Now, I don't think that means that they functioned as prophets in the way we think about it, but they spoke God's truth to the people. But nonetheless, that is a view that Asaph in the spirit is speaking of what will come in the future. Either the Babylonian destruction or what would come under Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, we don't know for sure, but when you compare this, you have the similar sort of language in Asaph Psalm in Psalm 79. Very similar And my conclusion, not dogmatic about this, but that this is ascribed to Asaph either in the sense of being penned by one of his descendants or it's written in the style. It has an Asaphic kind of quality to the psalm. And I think it probably most, when you take all the pieces together, I think that it either has to be ascribed to the circumstances of the Babylonian destruction In 586 BC, or else the circumstance under Antiochus Epiphanes, I think probably the destruction of Jerusalem in the sanctuary because of the language of burning it to the ground and everything being utterly destroyed. So I think that's the context in which the psalmist is writing the end of David's house and throne and kingdom, the end of Yahweh's tabernacle or his temple in Jerusalem, God's own departure from his people and his city. If you note the structure of the psalm, as I said, the psalms of lament tend to follow an, an ascending pattern, which you expect because they start at a low point of, of crying out to God in affliction and difficulty and suffering, and they rise to a high point of hope and trust and faith. And you see that with this psalm as well. It's composed in three uh, distinct parts, verses 1 through 11, 12 through 17, and 18 through 23. And through those three parts, you see all of these dynamics of lament as a scriptural uh, um, phenomenon. The psalm begins with the psalmist crying out to God in view of the destruction of everything that pertains to the Israelite kingdom. Everything that pertains to God's relationship seemingly with the people. Why have you rejected us forever? In perpetuity. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And so he cries out to God. Why? How long? And then he he goes from there to actually a notable shift where he immediately starts extolling God as his king. He cries out to God. Why is this continuing? Why does this continue in seeming perpetuity? Where are you, God? Why have you forsaken us? But then he cries out and says, God is my king. And he extols God as his king in terms of God's sovereignty and power as creator. Hinting at his enduring purpose for that creation. And we'll see that. And then finally, he ends on the note of calling upon God to remember his covenant with his people Israel. Not only because the covenant serves them, but because the covenant serves God's purposes ultimately for the creation. And because the covenant is fundamental to God's own integrity, his own testimony in the world. Remember your covenant for your sake is the idea for your sake. So in terms of the three sections, and I just want to kind of deal with them briefly, each section separately. The first section then again is the psalmist's complaint. Complaint not in the sense of complaining the way we complain, but complaint as his burden, his, his, his longing, that which is vexing him, lifting this up to God. He opens with a cry of desperation. Have you rejected us in perpetuity? Why have you rejected us in this way? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? And again, this is a communal lament. You have Asaph, or whoever penned this psalm, writing as an individual, but on behalf of the nation. He's speaking on behalf of the sheep of God's pasture, his congregation that he purchased, that he redeemed to be the tribe of his inheritance. He's writing on behalf of the nation. And he's concerned for the circumstance of the nation, but also note Mount Zion itself, the covenant habitation, God's dwelling place. He's concerned for the nation, but he's concerned for God's dwelling place, too. And it's because, and we know this, that God's presence is what made Israel, Israel if he's concerned for the house of Israel, God's people, God's redeemed covenant household, what made them unique, what made them distinct was that they were God's people. He was their God. They were his people. He was in their midst. And it was precisely his presence with them that made them as I said, his people and this calamity that has come upon them is associated with his departure from them. The desolation of Mount Zion is just, in a sense, the attesting in in physical form. The fact that God has made it desolate by departing. And we know that was the case in Ezekiel, right? God left. He forsook them. And you see this even in verse one. Oh, God, why have you rejected us forever? And the us is actually inserted. The rejection is kind of focused there, but rejected everything that you pledged, everything that you've done, everything that you've been about, everything centered in your covenant. So, the form, and this is the point that I'm making, the the form and specifically the focus of the psalmist's lament was not the people's suffering. If you look at what he unfolds here, his main burden is not the people's suffering, but the desolation of God's dwelling place and what that represented God's departure. He focuses on and on. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. They've roared in the midst of your meeting place. Set up their own standards for signs. They smash with hatchet and hammers. Burned your sanctuary to the ground. Defiled the dwelling place of your name. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. The focus is on God's habitation, his dwelling place. And again, that underscores the fact that he has abandoned. He has abandoned both them and the place of his habitation. So the psalmist cries out to God, not merely because of what these enemies, these adversaries have done to him and his people, but what they are doing to God himself. What they are doing to God by coming against his sanctuary, by coming against his dwelling place. They've defiled and destroyed the place from which he exercises his reign. And the idea is that they have raised themselves up as usurpers of his reign and his authority. By destroying the sanctuary, which was the place from which he executed his reign, they are raising themselves up against his authority and his rule. To establish their own dominion, their own authority. And that was what most vexed the psalmist. And he's perplexed and he's also deeply troubled that God isn't doing anything about it. This is your reputation. They are making an assault against you, they are coming against your rule, your authority in their arrogance, in their pride, they are speaking against you. They are acting against you. Why are you not dealing with this? And in fact, there's even the suggestion that God may not even particularly care. Again, if you look at what he says, let we find it in here. In verse 11, why do you withdraw your hand? Why do you not deal with this? Even your right hand, the hand of your power, the hand of your authority. From within your bosom, destroy them. See, he's saying, do you even care? Does it even matter to you? Do you even take note of this? You leave your hand, in a sense, within yourself. You're not acting to deal with this and he's perplexed by this and he's affronted by this why is the lord silent well that's his complaint but then again he immediately turns to this affirmation after raising this complaint to god god this is what's happening this is what they're doing this is what they've done why aren't you acting he he immediately turns and says but you are my king you are my king You have been my king from of old. You are the sovereign creator, Lord, who works wonders in the earth. You are the Lord who brings deliverance to his people. You are the one who works these wonders as a part of sustaining your creation and its order. You are. Divide the sea by your strength. You break the heads of the sea monsters. You crush the heads of Leviathan. You give him food for the creatures in the wilderness. You break open springs and torrents. You dry up ever flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours is the night. You've prepared the light and the sun, established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So God's kingship is tied to his lordship over his creation. Why is that important? Why does the psalmist point to that? Why doesn't he say, you rule over the nations, you, you, you do this, you do that? He deals with God's sovereignty and creation. And it's a part, again, of his poetic style in, in doing this. He's pointing to God's authority and power, God's design in his creation in order to make a point about what is his commitment to his people and their purpose according to his designs for the creation. He's essentially saying, God, you've shown yourself faithful to your covenant and to your people in the past, and you've done, and you've done so on behalf of your creation and your goal for the creation. You're the one who wields all power over the earth's creatures, over the natural processes. And and an Israelite hearing this would have his mind turned back to, again, God's deliverance and provision for Israel out of Egypt in the wilderness into the promised land. This is very much, even though he's talking about how God works in the creation, he's using language that very much hearkened to how God had been faithful to Israel in the past. He's the one who divided the sea. He's the one who crushed the Egyptian Leviathan, the Egyptian dragon, right? This is the way the prophets speak of Egypt and the Pharaoh. God set the boundaries of the land and the sea in the initial creation. He controls the rain and the streams of water, what's dry, what's wet. And he's the one who provided streams of water for the people in the wilderness. He's the one that used his authority over the creation to provide and sustain his people In the wilderness. He's the one that brought them into his own sanctuary land across the dry riverbed of the Jordan River. He parted the sea. He parted the river. So this authority and power over creation. The psalmist is drawing the minds of his readers back to the fact that God has used that on behalf of his covenant people on behalf of his purposes in and through Israel. He created the luminaries. He separated day and night. He caused the day to illumine his people in Egypt while the night enshrouded their enemies. He caused the sun to stand still for Joshua's battle. He caused the sun to go backward as a sign for Hezekiah. God has used these powers over natural things to provide and testify of himself to his people. That's what he's getting at in using that imagery. And then he ends with his plea. Therefore, remember this, O Yahweh, that the enemy is reviled. Don't lose sight of that. Take it to mind. Take it to heart. A foolish people has spurned your name. Don't deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Don't deliver your helpless people, Israel, to the devourer. Come to our rescue. Consider, take note of the covenant. The dark places of the land are filled with the habitations of violence. Don't let the oppressed re- return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. The one that he appeals to is the God who has been ever faithful in his creation, ever faithful to his intent for his creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who had covenanted with Abraham's children to have them be his people on behalf of the world on behalf ultimately of the whole creation. And with that understanding of his God, the psalmist was convinced that God would not remain silent forever. He had known him to be faithful. Israel had known him to be faithful. He was faithful in his creation. He's been faithful in the history of his people, and he will continue to be faithful. He will arise on their behalf. He will bring recompense to the adversaries and when God, arise, when God would arise and the psalmist is confident that he will when he would arise and act on their behalf he would exalt and display his own righteousness in other words by honoring the psalmist plea by honoring the people of Israel's plea he would be pleading his own cause the psalmist's concern is for Yahweh's own reputation, his honor, that he would be shown to be truthful, that he would be shown to be faithful, that he would not be seen as fickle. That perspective is consistent throughout the Lament Psalms, crying out to God and crying out to God, pleading that he will arise on behalf of his own cause, his own purposes. His own promises. You see it echoed in in the lives and the, the words of his faithful throughout Israel's life. That's why I read from Daniel. Daniel is pleading with God to be faithful to himself. To be faithful to his promises. That's what you see in Revelation 4 and 5. That's what you see in Nehemiah's prayer. That's what you see in David's prayers. That's what you see in Moses' intercession when the people build the golden calf. And God says, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, don't do it because the nations will see. And they'll say, God, the God of Israel was not able to keep his word. He was not able to prevail to bring his people into the land. He couldn't do it. So act for your own namesake. Act for your own testimony. Act for your own display of integrity in the world. That's how Moses pled. That's how lament works. It's pleading with God to be faithful to himself. And so this this lament, this pleading with God is unshakable confidence and trust that he will uphold all that he has purposed All that he has disclosed, all that he has promised, he will bring it to pass. And so, as I said last time, human faith and human faithfulness, as the scripture understands them, is nothing more than just recognizing and living out, recognizing and living out the reality of us, ourselves, being scripted into this purpose of God. Faith and faithfulness is us owning and living out our own place in God's purposes. These purposes that God has revealed and made known. And so faith is not just merely believing in some generic abstract sense that God is good or he's merciful or he's kind. Or even, you know, kind of the confessional idea. God does everything for his own glory. Okay, well, what does that mean? I believe God always acts for his own glory. What does that mean? Well, he does act for his own glory, but in the sense that he, his intent is to manifest and perfect his own intrinsic glory by transforming his creation and flooding it with that glory. Habakkuk's celebration as he trusts God in the context of the coming Babylonian siege is what? The earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Desolation, destruction, calamity are coming. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. This God who is eternally, infinitely glorious has determined to attain the consummate fullness of his own glory this process of summing up the whole creation in himself and in his son and so the lament of God's faithful people has this and I'm going to use this big term but I'll explain it it's it's an eschatological angst it's an angst that is oriented towards God's own purposes and designs It's not just complaining or pleading for God to relieve us from earthly suffering or difficulties, whatever they may happen to be. What, what this idea of lament is biblically is this kind of agonized longing to see God's intent and design and work fully realized in us, but in the creation as well. It's what Paul expresses in Romans 8. He says the whole creation is groaning. It's longing for the day when it too will be taken up in this renewal that has come in Jesus. And he says, and we too groan within ourselves. Longing for that day when death is swallowed up in life. And so this lament has both a personal dimension, but also a corporate dimension. Because our longing for our own consummate perfection in God's purposes is us being bound up in a new human community that is ultimately the center of a new creation that takes everything into its grasp, right? So if our lament is proper, it can't just be limited to ourselves, it takes into account God's work in this thing we call the human race and ultimately the whole creation. Lament holds tightly to God's faithfulness in his determined purpose and it longs to see that purpose fully revealed. What Paul calls the glorious revealing of the sons of God. That will see the whole creation taken up in the glory of God. So as we come, prepare to come to the table, I just want to ask us some questions. Uh, because again, my focus in doing this series in the Psalms is that they would become a part of our worship. Individually, corporately. But we have to engage with them properly. How do we do this thing called lament? What is our relationship with lament as the psalmists give it to us? Can we claim it as the core aspect of our individual and corporate worship? Do we think of lament? Do we own lament as central to our worship? Not just individually, but corporate, and really you can't have one without the other if it's if it's truly lament. Secondly, what is it what concerns what issues, what interests, what general concerns drive our complaints, our petitions, and our longings? Ask yourself and consider that question. What are the concerns that are behind what we call lament? Our complaint, our groaning, our longing, our petitions. What Concerns are behind that? What sorts of concerns? That's a very good indicator of whether our lament, our lamentations, are actually truly lament. If, if our lament is personal and very narrow, tied to our circumstances, then it's not going to be biblical lament. God, fix this, fix that. Solve this problem. Deal with my husband. Deal with my boss. Fix this. Fix that. That's not scriptural lament. And then, lastly, what perspective do we bring to our struggles in this life? I started by saying lament is grounded in the fact that our relationship with God as children to a father has struggles, it has difficulties. We learn sonship through the things we suffer. There is suffering in the Christian life. What is our perspective on it? Is our lament oriented towards God? This hurts, make it not hurt. Make this go away. Solve this problem. Fix this thing. The difficulties, the struggles, the sufferings are a given. What's our perspective on them? That's my question. That's very important to whether we understand and really do this thing of worship that is called lament. Is our focus, is our vision, is our hope simply tied to the fact that God is merciful and he's good and he's going to rise and he's going to take care of what's bothering me right now. What's hurting right now. What I'm wrestling with right now. Is our focus, our vision, our hope personal and circumstantial or is it eschatological? How long, O Lord, until you complete this work? How long? How long until I myself am even taken up in that completed work? I pray that we would be Lamenters in the scriptural sense, even as we are sharers in the life of Jesus, we need to be lamenters as Jesus lamented. It's kind of leading into the table, then I want us to consider something that maybe we wouldn't have thought of in terms of this idea of lament and even what it is to be lamenters as Jesus lamented. What is the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What is the context of that? The death of Lazarus, right? The death of Lazarus. And I want you to see how Jesus lamented and how he how the people were lamenting and how he wanted them to think about that circumstance. John chapter 11. This will be our leading into the the table. A certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Jesus knew them well. He'd spent time with them. He loved them. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sister sent to him, therefore, saying, Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. Come to him. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And when therefore he heard he was sick, he stayed two days longer. He didn't go, he lingered. And after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And they said, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and you're going to go up there again? Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You need to think properly. And after this, he said, our our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. You don't need to go. Why put yourself at risk? Why put us at risk? Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus said plainly to them, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. For your sakes that I was not there. So that you may believe, but now let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, was called Didymus, said to his disciples, let us also go. We might as well die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him and Mary still sat in the house. Martha came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. No, I am resurrection and life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, even the one who was to come into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister. She took her side secretly in the house and said, the teacher's here. He's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Jesus hadn't come into the village yet, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with Mary in the house and consoling her, when they saw her rise and leave quickly, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb. And when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, fell at his feet and said the same thing. Lord, if you had only been here, if you had come sooner, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews were saying, here's how they interpreted, behold how he loved him. And that's not untrue. That's all they could see in it, though. Behold how he loved him. What a tragedy that he died. Some of them were saying, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, again, being deeply moved, came to the tomb It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And he said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of Lazarus said, Lord, we can't. By this time, there will be a stench. She's been dead for four days. Jesus said, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And so they removed the stone and he raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know you always hear me, but because of these standing around, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. How is Jesus under, he's lamenting over the death of Lazarus, but ultimately at this thing of death that he himself is going to address. He is resurrection and life. He's lamenting with an eye to what it is that he's come to do. Not just to raise people physically from the dead, but to renew all things. He's the resurrection and the life. And when he had said these things, he cried out, said, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound, bound hand and foot with wrappings. His face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and set him free. Unbind him and set him free. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, then believed in him. But this also became the incident that stoked the fires. This man has to die, right? And it was precisely the fact that he would die, that he would become resurrection and life. You see the view that Jesus took in his lament. He didn't simply say, oh, I love this guy. He's dead. I'm so sorry to see him go. And he didn't simply say, oh, yeah, but I can raise him up again. His agony was over this whole thing of death that has gripped the creation and his commitment. He had come to deal with that. I am resurrection and life.